Good morning, Henson. Uh, my name is Robert, uh, and I am privileged to be here with you again after many years. Uh, and I'm privileged to be friends with Michael, but more on that in a moment. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a little nervous, which is unusual for me, uh, mostly because of how poorly things went last time. But it's, it's good to have forgiving friends. Uh, I was also pleased to find that I didn't have to wear a tie. Uh, at my church, you know, I'm an Anglican priest, so we, we wear a collar and robes and colorful accoutrement. And, uh, I thought about wearing a collar here, uh, but, but then I thought, uh, some of you might think it's Halloween. <laughs> but as I've been driving around through Portland the last five, six days, I also thought, it's pretty much Halloween here every day. So I, I was given some advice by a friend, you know, to endear myself to you, I should say something nice about Baptists. Um, I couldn't think of anything, so. <laughs> I'm kidding, of course. The first thing that, that sprang to mind was how forgiving you really are, so. Uh, we're going to take a look here at Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. I'm going to, to uh, read that text uh, then I'm going to pray, and we'll, we'll, we'll dig into it a bit. So uh, let me read this text. This is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day and for this passage, for the great challenge that is in it to us, your people. May my words be your words. May the Spirit bring forth from this text 
the truth that we need in this moment, that we may better love you and better reflect your love to the world. As the psalmist wrote, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart and all our hearts be found acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. I want to start with some Shakespeare. I, was, I learned earlier this week that Portland has a pretty prominent Shakespeare festival, so here we go. Specifically, Henry VI, Part Two, Act 4, Scene 2. Uh, the, 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 the one claiming to be king, Jack Cade, and his band of murderous rapscallions are whimsically, if not mockingly, contemplating, imagining what an ideal society might be like. Jack offers this picture. I thank you, good people, there shall be no money. And all shall eat and drink on my score, and I will apparel them in all in one livery, and they may agree like brothers and worship me, their Lord. Sounds nice, right? And adding to this glorious picture, one of his henchmen adds one of Shakespeare's most famous and enduring lines, a first step to building the ideal civilization. The first thing we do, let's kill all the lawyers. Think about it. They're, they're imagining a perfect world, a utopia. And in order to achieve a better society, they imagined getting rid of not the other bandits, not the drug dealers, not the bill collectors, not the police, not even the politicians. The first step to a better world is to get rid of the lawyers. Now, setting aside how you or I may uh, personally feel about lawyers, and of course, excluding any lawyers who are presently here, and yes, I've come to learn there are lawyers who go to church, the line is clearly a joke. But it's a joke that m makes sense. Lawyers, you see, have, have this way of, of, of uh, wrangling over words that can be very vexing, uh, and yet remarkably effective. Always pressing their advantage, finding a legal means to a desired end. And in fact, they go to school for it. They spend three years perfecting the craft of arguing, of making their cases, of finding laws to justify their actions. Uh, they can be intimidating. They can be aggravating. They can be infuriating. Lawyers. First thing we do, let's kill all the lawyers. Because you see, it's, it's a lawyer who's actually at the center of our reading this morning. Uh, but it is not death but life that is in view. In this parable, Jesus helps this lawyer, this lawyer who is seeking eternal life, to learn an important lesson. Legal recourse is no match for God's grace. Let me say that again. Legal recourse is no match for God's grace. In other words, if, if you want to have eternal life, to be saved, to be in the glorious presence of the Lord for all eternity, it's not the law and it's not your lawyering that is going to get you there. It's God's grace. So let's take a look. Now, you, you may already be familiar with the story at the center of our passage, the story that Jesus tells this lawyer, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, it's one of Jesus' classics. And the lesson in the parable seems quite clear. We should be like the Samaritan man and engage in acts of mercy, go and do likewise, caring for even those we are predisposed to despise, possibly on ethnic grounds. 
since we learn in places like John 4, Samaritans and Jews had a long-held cultural divide. It's a powerful message for societies as divided as ours, and it would be very easy for me to settle in right here, in fact, and tell you that Jesus-like compassion for the Good Samaritan is what will overcome all social divides, including ethnic and economic, and bring us to an ideal world. To a certain extent, I actually believe that. Only the gospel will bring about true reconciliation and peace. But that's not actually what this passage is about. Other passages are about that, but reading this one closely, there's actually something more going on here than just the parable. If we look a bit earlier in the text, we will see something perhaps unexpected, a a clue to why Jesus tells the parable in the first place. It's not about Samaritans at all. It's actually about a different person, the person to whom the parable is directed. Jesus has been going about about his ministry when he's approached by a lawyer. The first thing we need to look at then is the lawyer's problem. The lawyer's problem. It's right there in verse 25. He asks, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Seems like a rather natural question. It's human to want to know how we might be a part of something that transcends this life especially as we get older or as we survey the decay of this world all around us, our hearts and our minds turn to the eternal. Indeed, as we learned this last week in our Ecclesiastes workshop, God has put eternity unto man's heart. But according to Luke, this lawyer's question is not a philosophical or even theological query. It's a test. And inherent in the question is a supposed answer. Uh, The translation here obscures it a little. Uh, Literally, he asks, what must I do to legally inherit eternal life? This explains Jesus' otherwise out-of-place response about the law. What does the law tell you to do? The lawyer asks a legal question, so Jesus gives him a legal answer. The lawyer then responds again, and because he's a lawyer, he's almost certainly billing Jesus at this point. Uh, The lawyer responds with the summary of the law and the prophets. Love God and love your neighbor, right there in verse 27. Jesus tells him, that's right, go do it, problem solved. But then the lawyer, unsatisfied with the answer and still looking for that loophole that will allow him to gain eternal life without the effort of keeping the whole law all of the time, asks another question, verse 29. And who is my neighbor? You see the wrangling with words? Luke adds an important characterization here in verse 29. The man was trying to justify himself. He was trying to earn eternal life by means of keeping the law, and so as a good lawyer wanted clearly defined parameters. If I have to love my neighbor, then tell me who my neighbor is. I will make the effort to love him or her and nobody else. Transaction complete goal achieved, you can put my ticket for eternal life in the mail. It's at this point that Jesus then tells the parable. We're actually now ready to understand the reason Jesus tells it. That is, the lawyer's problem is confronted by the Lord's parable. And the parable is far more than a broad encouragement to be charitable. The ending is quite odd if mercy is the only purpose. You go and do likewise. 
It's a strange exhortation for a Jewish lawyer. Go and be like a Samaritan. Go be like our cultural enemies. This is unthinkable. Certainly would not have motivated this lawyer or inspired him to good works. But remember, he was trying to justify himself. He wanted a legal means, a legally binding way of gaining eternal life. It was his reliance on the law that Jesus was challenging. Consider the parable itself. The first two visitors to the man who had been stripped, beaten, and left for dead were a priest and a Levite, verses 31 and 32. Both are religious workers in the temple. And more importantly, bound by strict ritual purity laws, the kind of laws that prevent touching or even going near a possibly dead man. The presence of blood may also have been a deterrent as well for ceremonial purity reasons. And in the story, Jesus was very careful to indicate this is the situation. The man was stripped, beaten, and half dead. And so these religious folks acted with the purity laws on their side, avoiding the carnage of the robbery. But, and this is Jesus' point, their commitment to the law prevented them from keeping the law of humanity from mercifully showing grace to this nearly dead man. This is, in his kind of wonderfully Socratic fashion, the way Jesus pinned down this lawyer. He's saying, do you really think you are capable of keeping the law to the point of earning eternal life? You can't even reconcile your commitment to purity laws with the law of showing mercy to a man in desperate need. You can't love your neighbor if you're going to insist on always hiding behind ritual laws. Remember, the the lawyer is testing Jesus, trying to justify himself according to the law. Jesus is very plainly showing him the law is not going to save him, and it never was. Legalism is opposed to God's mercy. Let me put it like this. Something more than the law is needed. A theme Luke actually builds throughout this chapter. Just before our passage in Luke 10.22, Jesus tells his followers, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. This is, if if you want to know the Father, to know the life he brings, he must be revealed to you. You can't go earn your way toward him. The next passage, the one after the parable, continues this idea. You know the story of Mary and Martha. Martha flitting around, being a good host, getting Sunday dinner ready, while Mary just sits there listening to Jesus. How does Jesus respond in this situation? Martha is challenged in her commitment to good hospitality, while her sister, Mary, is commended for placing herself at Jesus' feet. Mary understood what this lawyer did not, the law and the rules. Even the laws of ritual purity and the rules of well-meaning hospitality are not going to get you the better thing. They are not going to gain you eternal life. Nobody is capable of justifying himself according to the law. 
Not Moses, the first man to receive the law from God. Not David, the king after God's own heart and protector of the law. Not Ezra, the great recoverer of the law. Not even Paul, the most righteous of Pharisaical law keepers. Only Jesus. He was the only person who ever perfectly kept the law, who was perfectly righteous. And despite this, he was put on a cross. In fact, if the law had been followed, if Jesus had been treated according to his righteousness, then there would have been no cross, no dark Friday night, no early Sunday morning, no gospel. Something more than the law was needed. And Jesus provided. He gave his life, not on account of his righteousness, but our unrighteousness, to satisfy God's righteousness. Michael, please forgive me for inserting something distinctly Anglican here. Uh, but one of the prayers following the, the uh, communion in the 1662 Book of Common Prayer has an especially beautiful way of putting it. Not weighing our merits, but pardoning our offenses. Law is not the solution, and it never was. So what? First thing we do, we kill all the lawyers. Shakespeare's right. But here's the thing. There's a lawyer in each of us. There's a tendency to want to justify yourself and this plays out in different ways. For some of us, it's expressed in a transactional mindset, like the priest and the Levite who trade in the law. Remember Leviticus 19, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself is still a law. And it's the lawyer's starting point in favor of other ritual purity laws. They engage in a little trading around to suit their own desires and press their own advantages, and it's so easy for us to do the same. to balance the cosmic scales of righteousness in our favor. Of course, I'm a good person. I do good things. I go to church most Sundays. In fact, I even volunteer. And just in case that isn't enough to make me ritually clean, I tithe. And when I do bad things, I make up for it. I might be tempted to take my anger out on people, but I make up for it by being nice later. I might be tempted towards sins of the flesh, but... I show restraint, I look, but I don't touch. I might step beyond the edges of ethics in my work, but I make up for it by being generous to charity. I might harbor hatred in my heart, but I balance it out by saying nice things to people. It's so incredibly easy to adopt this transactional mindset. What penance must I do? What indulgence must I purchase? What good deed must I complete so that God is bound by legal agreement or at least some principle of fairness that I've devised in my own mind to give me eternal life? The lawyer needed to learn this lesson. Indeed, the solution for the lawyer's problem was that he needed to leave the legal profession. He needed to know you don't earn eternal life by being righteous, by keeping the requirement of the law, 
by being good enough or trying to be more good than you are bad. You gain eternal life. You gain salvation from Christ so that then you can live righteously. The Apostle Peter, who was, who was there and listening to Jesus, later put it like this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that, free from sins, we might live for righteousness. First thing we do, we kill all the lawyers. We have to kill the lawyer that is in each of us. And let me be very clear, kill only that lawyer. But we must, we must. Paul put it like this in Colossians 3, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. And so put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. The Puritans called it the mortification of sin, which is not self-punishment for a particular instance of sin, as some have taken it, but rather the conscious and deliberate need to mortify, that is to put to death the lingering sinful impulses, the habitual sins and temptations that persist into one's Christian life far more than they should. Not talking about one-off sins, but the habits, the addictions, the routine sins. You know which ones I'm talking about. Some people might dress them up and call them vices. Oh, you know Grandpa's got that gambling problem. Grandma sure does cuss a lot. She doesn't mean anything by it. It's kind of cute, right? You write it off. But more likely... People around you just do not say anything out of fear or embarrassment. It's impolite to point these sins out. They are the ones that make us feel like we are in prison, like they are beyond our control, like they're a very part of our nature, anger, deceitfulness, lust, impatience, arrogance, selfishness, lovelessness, and so on. Well, these sins need to be mortified. They need to be put to death. And the reason is because they are the primary place, the prime ground for self-justification. We know we should not live with them, but we also can't quite get rid of them. And so we compromise. We self-justify. We pretend we are acceptable to God. We make excuses but never quite accept responsibility. We transact lawfulness to balance them out, And these habitual sins, we must realize, cannot lead to righteousness. And so we let them drag us towards self-righteousness. And we all have these sins. Maybe today is the day that we put them to death. Maybe today is the day we confront something about ourselves putting away the self-realization and uncritical affirmation that our culture heaps upon us and honestly begin to deal with the fact that we have these sins, these habits, and that they are keeping us from God. How do we mortify such sins? 
Well, the same way this lawyer should finally do what he needed to do and leave the legal profession. Only one thing was ever going to help us, to save us, and it is falling at the feet of Jesus Christ in faith. And then, then we live according to the spirit and not flesh, the flesh that brings death and needs to be put to death. Paul picks up on this uh, when he considers that same verse from Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself in Galatians 5. If you want, turn there with me because he turns it this way in Galatians 5, 16 and 18. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And then he lays out this, this vision of contrast, life versus the flesh. Life that is in the spirit versus the flesh, concluding positively with the fruit of the spirit. Down there in verse 22 and 23, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. These are the things we must give ourselves to. As those not justified by the law, but as those putting to death the sins that push us toward self-justification, these are the ways we love our neighbor. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. First thing we do, kill all the lawyers. Now, before I go, I want to briefly consider what it is that makes us lawyers. Given that the way the parable is presented, there are really, I think, two options worth considering. First, I can't ignore that the characters in the parable are presented as Jews, really Jewish elites, and a Samaritan. The ethnic dimension to this parable is right there on the surface, and hard as we try as a society and as individuals, there is still a part of our flesh that sees ethnicity as a way of dividing us into us and them, that makes failing to love our neighbor a little more palatable because we view them as lesser. Ethnic division has no place in the church, in our society, or in our hearts. This is the kind of sin that needs to be mortified. The Samaritan was not bothered by the ethnicity of the victim and so serves as an example, put away prejudice. Second, beyond the ethnic dimension, we also have the arrogance of moral superiority. And I wonder if this is actually even more in view here, because Jesus is showing the profound divide between legalism and mercy and framing uh, the one who helped in terms of compassion. I wonder if the problem for the Jewish leaders in failing to show mercy to a fellow Jew is that they were hiding behind the letter of the law as those professionally responsible for the law. 
In other words, they did, they did not feel compelled toward compassion because they were proud to be law keepers. How easy is it for us to have this kind of moral superiority, especially as fierce tribalism plagues the evangelical world that we inhabit? How easy it is for us to look upon fellow Christians who are not as holy as we are, who have lesser doctrine than we do, who make more compromises than we think are appropriate. We look upon them in disgust and we walk the long way around rather than sharing even the tiniest morsel of mercy. And to be clear, I'm not suggesting that you or I compromise essential biblical things. I'm talking about an attitude in our hearts when it comes time to show mercy to others. We often pretend to be more humble than thou art, more pious, and try to score points for the afterlife. In fact, we're happy to run up that score rather than love our neighbors as ourselves. This sort of religious superiority and the arrogance of it is the kind of sin that needs to be put to death. We want to be Christians who are known for being welcoming and full of compassion, winsome and hospitable to those in need, putting before them the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace, not divisive and full of arrogant moral superiority. In the end... We must live as those who have been shown grace. Perhaps today is the first day that you might begin to live this way, to evaluate your own self-righteousness, because legal recourse never was a match for God's extraordinary grace. We are now free to kill the lawyer to stop the negotiations in our heads to the trades of good deeds for sins. It's just too easy to keep doing it, to keep rationalizing, to keep earning, to keep transacting, to keep thinking my value is in what I do and what benefit I am, even as a benefit to others. But we're free to put it to death now. Because my value and your value in the only transaction of righteousness that matters is in the purchase price, the very blood of Jesus Christ. The old hymn asks the right question, what can wash away my sin? Not the law, not our lawyering, not righteousness. The answer comes in the next line, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let me pray and then let us stand and sing. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your Son, the one who rescued us from sin and law and death at great cost to himself.
Help us, O Lord, to cling to him, to his grace, and not our own righteousness. Give us strength to follow him. In the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Now, hear the Lord's benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.